0: So I was thinking about this idea of God seeing each one of us. And I want to take us just for a few minutes into my own personal journey. It's a bit autobiographical. Uh, I have been leading worship since I was twenty, twenty-two, 22 or so, and I'm now 53. So that's 31 years. For the love of all things holy, the apostles and all the saints. That's a long time. That's three decades of of Sundays. Not every Sunday of a year, but a lot of Sundays. And I've also been a pastor. I've been involved in ministry situations. It's just been, it was the path of my life. And, And God took me on it. And it was only about halfway through that, 15, 20 years into my journey, that I began to have some awakenings about who I was. Because there was no teaching in the church about that. I mean, you just just do the thing you need to do, right? You being you is not really the point. We actually just need you to fulfill a function. With me? And this little verse, it was highlighted probably about 20 years ago. And I just want to read it to you. It's Ephesians chapter 2. And it's a very simple verse. Verse 10. It says, for we are God's handiwork. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do God works, God's good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know what the word for handiwork is there? It's the Greek word poema. We are God's poetry. You are God's poem. You are God's poem. Now, I happen to love Poetry. I have two shelves full of poetry books and my wife thinks I'm just a nutcase. I'll say, Anita, you have got to hear this. And I'll open up the British poets, the the golden leaves of the British poets. It's one of my books. And I'll flip through and I'll say, read this. And she's like, you're still weird. I'm like, I know, but that's awesome, right? No two poems are alike. They're different, beautiful, magnificent, crafted expressions of the same heart often but they have nuance to them. They have flavor, they have color, they have different shapes and forms to them. And it resonates with this idea in Genesis 1, 26 to seven, in the beginning, God creates and he breathes into dust and he creates humankind in his image. And we have all sorts of fun exploring all the magnificence of God, the complexity of God that would toss a supernova into space and then put this gleam of beauty in a baby's eyes. We talk about the microcosm and the macrocosm and, and we could just go on and on exploring the glories and wonders and mystery and diversity that is in God. But then when it comes to us, we feel like we need to be sort of cookie cutter and do it the way that someone else does it, whatever it is. Are you with me? And I don't know how we come across that, that idea that somehow squelches individuality just in case there might be too much individualism in the package. Are you with me? That squelches personality because it might become about us in the process. Well, let me tell you something. I really believe God is happy to live in the dangerous land of individuality being expressed and someone's heart being yielded to him in the midst of it so that he can expose the sin and brokenness and pride as we are who God made us to be. He is happy to do that work. We don't have to protect him from having to be too busy. By making sure that we're comparing ourselves to others and doing it the way we think it should be done, etc. So that just in case our hearts might ever be too much about us, we just don't go there at all. So about 20 years ago, I had a crisis point in my life. I was pastoring in a local church and our senior pastor decided they were going to go plant, plant a vineyard out in Vancouver in British Columbia. The Board of Elders got together, and I was was the worship leader, just a young pup in the kingdom leadership world. And they decided that God had spoken to them together that they were to ask me to pastor the Cambridge Vineyard in Canada. It was a church of about 500, which is a little overwhelming for my first pastoring role Decided they'd ask me to do it, and my wife and I went away. We had a time of discernment. Should we do this, should we not? I had a hundred reasons why we shouldn't, and only one reason why we should, because God said to do it. So, we went through this whole process. God kept taking us back to the book of First of, uh, and Second Timothy, where a young pastor is learning the ropes in the midst of the real deal of leading. And so we said yes, but I didn't plan on something. I didn't plan on my first Sunday going into a season of four months of deep depression, deep depression, as I was starting to pastor this church. I mean, I was a broken man, guys. I've battled with severe depression most of my life, and it's only been the last few years that I felt a deep freedom in my bones. Some of it has to do with what I'll share with you in a moment. But I hit the wall. And as I was going through this process, I had elders praying for me and everything else. And I think those elders were getting together. We're going to get together to pray for you. Oh God, don't blow up this church because this guy can't get out of bed. Like that's going to, it's not going to work well. We thought we had God's man of power for the moment. And here he is a basket case. And in that time, people began to call me. People began to send me words. People began to care for me in such a way that I had never been cared for before. They began just to love on me, and I began to see something else. They began to let that spill over into the congregation. We became a community like no other in that moment. It was like God just took the whole thing, came in the opposite direction of my great weakness, and bonded us together as a unit. And there was something so profound that was put in my heart, I fell in love with the body of Christ. I just fell in love with the church. To this day, if I hear anyone dissing the church as if we're all the same thing, you know what I mean, some big package. Well, the church is da da da. I'm like, hold on, hold on. I just need to get my holster opened up, because I want to talk to you. What'd you say about the church? What'd you say? What? Say that again. You know, because I watched the church become the safest place on earth, not just for everyone else walking in the room, but for me. I was accepted. I was loved. I was embraced in all of this. And at one point, one of my elders came up to me and he said, Dan, I think the Lord showed me something. I said, okay, bring it. He said, yeah, I think the Lord showed me something. He said, "Um, who did God call to be the pastor of this church? And I said, me. And I thought I was going to get some like rousing, therefore do it. Darn it, because God has a stick and he's like, watch it, get on it. Instead, he said, Who did God call to be the pastor of this church? And I said, He called me to do this, to lead this church. He said, Okay, tell me who you are. And I stumbled over my words and said something that dribbled off my chin. I still don't even remember what it was. It was, Well, I'm this and that. He said, Well, let me tell you a few things I know you to be. He said, I've watched you over the years. You're a worship leader, you love to worship, you're a musician, you're a poet, you're an artist. I've watched you. You're an artist by nature. That's who you are. And you've got all sorts of quirky things you love that you get deer in the headlights from the congregation whenever you've talked about them. Like you say, I just love this thing. And people are, you know, the RCA Victor dog sort of. Hmm. Yeah. He said, I've watched you do all that. He said, God called you. Don't you dare be someone else when you lead us. And he walked away. He did one of those dramatic things that you see like in, in like Downton Abbey or something. And that's that. You know, I'm like, I always say to my wife, why don't they stay and talk it out? Like, no one should be allowed to leave the room in the middle of it. She said, it wouldn't be the same dramatic effect. I said, that's right. I wouldn't keep watching it. They're gone. Drop the mic, right? He dropped the mic, and the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. And he just began to say, Dan, here's the way we're going to do this. You will not last if you are wearing someone else's armor. You're not going to last. You may feel like that's what you need to do to keep a church this size going and growing. We had planted six churches at that stage. We, we had this, this evangelistic pastor who was always getting us reaching out and all these things. I learned how to care for the poor from that pastor. Like I learned because my first day on the job as a worship leader, it was awesome. First day on the job as a worship leader, I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to, for the next week, go give the furniture to the poor that we have. And then I want you to work with the poor. And then the second week, we're going to change it up a little bit. You're going to work more with the poor. I loved it. It was like it formed me as a worship leader and as a leader. But there was this moment of just discovery that the Holy Spirit was investing himself in saying, Dan, why would I want you to check your uniqueness at the door so that you can do this thing as if I'm filling some slot I invited you to be you and to flourish as you as I use you. And he used you so many times in that word that I've, it was awkward and it was guilty. And I was like, this is so wrong. Lord, there's too much you. This could turn into ego and pride and all sorts of things. You even know what you're thinking here. And he's like, when I breathe life into that dust, all the creativity of the universe was invested in all these flourishing expressions of God's handiwork, God's poems everywhere. Why would we all want to sound the same, be the same? Lead the same way. And these realities just began to stir in my heart. And I began to somewhat clunkily, you know, figure out how I was going to pastor a church and be all these other things as well. And the Lord just began to speak to me a few things. He said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to be that pastor who leads worship once a month. Like, you're just going to do that. You're not going to speak. You're going to lead worship once a month. Okay, so I can stay in that. can stay in that. Here's what else you're going to do. You're going to start writing poetry for the church. You're going to preach to them, but you're also going to give them poetry. And I had never heard of of any of these great pastors who who wrote poetry like George Herbert. Has anyone ever read read Love 2, the poem Love 2 of George Herbert? Oh my goodness, go find it online. Read Love 2. Read these moments where he in poetry is saying, you know, when you're in mourning, when you're in loss, and, and, and Christ sits with you in, in grieving, because how many of you know Christ will go with you to the place of suffering and sit intimately with you in your pain and mourn with you. But after three days, he kind of tends to get up from the places of death. Like he doesn't stay in long. <laughs> he stays there. But then in this beautiful poem, in, in the love too, and, and various other poems he has there, he has this beautiful line. As Christ rises, don't break with the hand that raiseth thee. Don't break with the hand that's raising you. Don't stay in your place of mourning and grief any longer than Jesus is staying there with you. Let him lead you from it. And I'm telling you, I hadn't discovered any of this. I didn't know any of these things. So I began to write poetry for my congregation. And the Lord said, okay, here's another thing. No one knows that you actually studied acting and you were going to become an actor when you were in high school. No one knows you did any of that. So here's what we're going to do. This Easter, you're going to be Peter. You're going to be Peter. You're going to take everyone through Peter's journey in Easter. And you're going to write a script and you're going to memorize it. And you're going to be Peter. And that's going to be the Easter message. And I'm like, Lord, okay. At this point, it was just like, okay. And he began to show me a way to just integrate who I was. Now, did I still get deer in the headlight? Sure. Do I still need to know who I'm speaking to when I'm speaking and not just be kind of off in some world? Absolutely. But the Lord began to just bring this sweet initiative in my heart that helped me to understand that I was his unique poem. And when I came to Jesus and surrendered all at the cross, absolutely I surrendered all that I am. But he was only interested in the part dying that was the sin part. That was the broken part. That's the only thing he was interested in me dying to. He wasn't interested in me dying to who he made me to be. And he's not interested in that for any single one of us. So he began to speak to me about this idea. And I was led to 1 Corinthians 12, where it says this. I love the way the message says it. God's various gifts are handed out everywhere, but they all originate in the same spirit. They all originate in God's spirit. God's various ministries are carried out everywhere, but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various expressions of power are everywhere. They're in action everywhere, but God himself is behind it all. Each person is given something to do that shows who God is. All kinds of things are handed out by the spirit to all kinds of people. And I love the way Peterson puts it. The variety is wonderful. It's majestic. It's glorious. It magnifies the complex, diverse, magnificent God when we are who we are in the midst of doing the ministry God has given us to do. Now, this only works if the foundation is in alignment. And we talked about the foundation this morning. If we know we are loved by God, and if we are rooting ourselves and establishing ourselves in it, we can begin to play with God on the playground of leadership. You with me? We don't have to sound like everyone else or do everything the same way. And hear me, I know when I step into a role what my job is. I've been invited to do something for a particular community with particular leaders, all who, who though we're in community as leaders, some have a greater say in how certain things... I get all of that. I get it all. But if you start to cut off things that bring you life... That energize you, that bring you delight, that bring you joy, not only in the ministry, but outside of it, we will lose you. We'll lose you. Because somewhere along the line, you will hit a wall, I promise. If you've ever read a book called Stages of the Spiritual Life, it's fascinating. The wall is a gift. The Apostle Paul hit a wall. He had a mission, he had a purpose, he knew who he was, and the love of God slapped him off a horse. He fell face down. Because sometimes you have to lose your sight to gain, to gain a vision. And sometimes you have to lose your time. He went away for three years, stopped doing anything to gain eternity. And sometimes you have to lose your job to gain a mission. Or for a mission to gain you. And in Paul's experience, he's knocked off his horse, he experiences love, and now the foundation is set for him to build uniquely who God made him to be. God was going to collaborate with him in ministry over a lifetime. Now, I wrestled with, with how to talk about this tonight because for me... As I said this morning, I feel like, you know, I'm over half a century. I can say, get off my lawn. I can do whatever I want. But one of the things that I want to do for we who are older in ministry life and we who are just starting out is help us get a few things in alignment or this building will be off. And the reality is we only have one life to live. I am not going to live someone else's life, someone else's idea, and then end my days and say goodbye forever till I'm in eternity, right? Right. I am not going to do that being someone else. There's an ancient, uh, there's a story of a rabbi. His name was Zuzia. And he said this to to his disciples. He said, when I stand before the Lord of heaven and earth, he will not ask me, why were you not Moses? He will ask me, why were you not Zuzia? Why were you not you? Explain that to me. Did I ask you to crush everything you love and everything that moves you and your passions? What you're going to hear is a counterbalance to some of what I said this morning. God will invite you to do things you do not want to do and love will keep you there. Love will lead you there and love will keep you there. And when someone says, hey, you should probably leave. This is too hard. You will say to them, like David said, get behind me and don't you dare rescue me from what God has invited me to do. Because he's changing others and he's changing me through it. And I don't feel any joy maybe in my bones as I do it. But I know he said to do it. And because he loves me, here I stand. You with me? That's going to happen. God will invite you to do things you don't want to do. At the same time, God will fan into flame things that you love to do. He will invite you to be who you are. And instead of your question primarily being why, like, you know, why would I go and do that? It would be too much if I really began to feed this thing that I love or go to these concerts or spend time on a boat because I love sailing or, or paint or, or do any of these other things. Why? You're going to start asking the question that love causes you to ask. Why not? Why not? You want to end your life miserable? I don't. Ministry is hard. I need as many self-renewing things to be a part of it as part of my life for me to do this well till the end of my days. And so I want to take us just through a few keys that I think are keys to freedom in our ministry life. Freedom and leadership. And then I want us to move into a time of ministry and praying for one another over the ideas from this morning and these. First key to freedom, nurture your life with God. Leaders need to have a self-feeding spirituality. We think that we're self-feeding Christians until there's the absence of church. Something goes wrong. We're out of it. We're knocked out of the game. We're we're arrested, pulled off the side of the road. We're put on 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 the bench. We're pulled out of the game by circumstances or by some other means. And we think we have a self-feeding spirituality until we realize without the critical mass of energy that comes along with what we do and us doing it, we actually don't have an intimate, deep-rooted, established life with God built. So the first thing I want to say is we have to invest in this. I love this passage from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It says this, Work for God that is not nurtured by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego, power, needing approval of and from others, and buying into the wrong ideas of success or the mistaken belief that we can't fail. Our activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. See, for me, along my leadership journey, I began to realize something. Quiet times didn't work for me anymore. How many of you have a consistent daily quiet time where you you are feasting on the Word of God and having a time of prayer that is set apart from everything else? It's not while you're doing something else. It's your thing. And I want you to be brutally honest that every single day you have that. Okay. How many of you definitely brutally honest have it every other day? Okay. Not a lot of hands, right? How many of you have found that over your lifetime, the Lord has maybe given you some liberties in that? He's given you some space. You've got a lot of the Bible in you. I'd like you just to learn to walk with me in it. And I love that transition that happens in our lives because us not raising our hands is not necessarily a bad thing. The Lord is teaching us how to move from a life for God to living a life with God. We're talking to God. How many of you talk to God all the time? Like it's just an incessant running conversation. How sweet is that? How many of you feel, you feel like you have a lot of the scriptures in you and, and they come to mind fairly quickly? Right? See, these things came from discipleship. They came from different circumstances. What I began to find, though, is I needed a daily repetitive interaction with God that would continue to build me as a person when I didn't really have the time or the space or even the mood. <laughs> How many of you found this? Even the mood to have this quiet time block. That I needed things that I could repeat. So that daily exam we did this morning. I do that. No, no, no fluff on it. I probably do it eight or nine times a day in my head. I'll be in the middle of work. I'll get a stressful email. Something will happen and I'll say to my daughter, see you in a minute. And I take a two minute walk around our office space that we're in. And I sit back down, and I'm recentered, and bam, here we go. We're back at it, right? I do it at least eight or nine times a day. Anytime something difficult comes, I become aware of the presence of God. I turn my heart toward thankfulness for everything that's gone before. Then I lock into the moment, and I say, how am I feeling? Right now I'm disgusted. That was brutal. I can't even believe they said that. But I'm just going to get honest, Lord. Here it is. It's how I feel. Why am I in this job? Oh, because love invited me here. Thanks. Anyway, I give that emotion to you. Here it is. It's all yours. Now I choose something to pray about. I'm going Pray that I don't respond pro- improperly to that email. I'm going to pray for that and I pray for that person because you love them so much and I really want to, but right now I'm finding it hard. So I do that and then do it and then I move to the last stage and I say, Now I look with hope toward the next three hours as I just looked back and was thankful. I am so thankful for what you're about to do in these next three hours and about to do in this email I'm about to type. It's going to be awesome. High fives, Jesus. Boom. I'm telling you, I can do that in one minute. I can do it in two minutes, whatever. But I find that it's part of my self-feeding spirituality now. It's in my bones. I can't not do it. I can't not look at what just happened in the last few hours without thankfulness leading the way. So we have tools like that. You do have scripture study tools, but one of the things I use, Pete Cezaro put together a lovely little daily office journal. It's two minutes of silence, a scripture, a thought and two minutes of silence, and I'm out. I began to do this uh, about five years ago, about uh, two, twice a day. One in the morning and one in the evening. That was it. It was all the scripture I needed was, was a meal of a few verses and a thought about them that moved me and connected me. And I love that there are a lot of quotes in here about the, from the church historic. But silence, orienting to God, centering i found that those are really helpful on the journey because I can do them at any time. I can do them all along the way. Ruthlessly eliminating hurry from my life. Here's another part of of doing the long haul. John Ortberg in that book out there, Soul Keeping, you happen to have it on the merch table. We didn't even plan that. That's lovely. He talks about asking Dallas Willard before he died, tell me the one key to spiritual maturity. Give me the one key. And Dallas Willard said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And John Ortberg said, okay, that's great. What a great spiritual idea concept. But I'm looking for like the key to growing as a spiritual leader, as a force to be reckoned with of God. And Dallas said, I just said it. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. What would it take for you to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life? When that came crashing in on my heart, my immediate thought was, God, I'm going to get a lot less done, and that's a problem. He said, oh, it is a problem, isn't it, for you to get a lot less done that has infinitely more impact because I'm sustaining you and giving it force and gravitas, weight. I think it's okay for you to get less done that's more effective. For you to get less done because you've learned how to listen. John Wimber many years ago said, hey, you can't watch TV all the time and hear the voice of God. And I really have a personal perspective, whether it's Netflix or other. Do we think the enemy is not involved stealing hours and 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 hours away from spiritual leaders and everyone in our congregation as we are discipled by movies and movies and movies and more movies and more movies and episodes and shows and binge watch? Are you with me? We can't expect to hear the voice of God and just be ingesting like baby chicks everything that's being handed to us by the culture. I love to watch things too, but I've seen that those two hours could be spent with me writing a song, with me reading a book, with me doing something other. And hurry as well creates fragmented thinking. I found that when I was walking over here from dinner, my steps were quick because I wanted to be here on time to get wired up and said, and my steps were quick. And the Lord said, ho, ho, ho. You're gonna be about 30 seconds later than you were. And I just began to walk slowly find little moments ways to slow yourself down are you relating to this at all is this find ways to slow yourself down you will hear god better i'm just saying you will promise you'll hear god better find ways to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life so that your paced life is a more receptive antenna to the spirit's whispers because you're not preoccupied or reoccupied you with me? Find ways to power down. Find ways to disconnect from all the voices coming at you. I love C.S. Lewis's words. He said, at the beginning of every day is the first battle. You wake up and the first battle begins. And here's that first battle. All sorts of voices are going to start coming at you in your mind. They start telling you what's going on today. What you, the kids have to get over here and I've got this thing. So they're all going to come at you. And he said, in the first work of every day, The first battle, pull your sword out, the first battle of every day is to stop those other voices from coming in, to shut the door on them so that you can hear the voice of God giving you the direction of your heart for the day. And I thought, oh, CS, oh, Clive Staples. You wrote that before the day of smartphones where the first thing, how many of you be honest, in the the last year, How many of you, at least maybe 50% of your days, the first thing you clicked on was your phone? And all these voices, emails, Facebook, laying in bed, some of you all. What's going on in everyone's lives? Like voices, 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 stress. Like we take those things in. It changes our ability to hear the voice of God to start our day. So I had a spiritual habit that honestly I struggle to keep, and it is my phone does not come on until I have had whatever space I'm going to have with God. At least I do an exam when, I'm, when I wake up in the morning and I do one at night as I'm laying in bed. So that's the pillow talk that I do. <laughs> and then I whisper to Anita, I'm, I'm busy right now. And she actually says, it's so awesome now, she goes, are you in the middle of, of your exam or, or can we talk? And I'm like, just give me a minute. I, I have to be grateful for you a second here. Just, Okay, I'm good. I'm good. You know, little, little husband tip there. I, honey, I... Uh, I'm actually busy thinking about you and saying what a jewel you are to me before the Lord. And uh, it goes better. It's just amazing. So um, so there you go. Just some tips on a key to freedom in your leadership life, in your ministry life. Okay? We're building on this foundation of love. But now we're about to just begin to work with our hearts. And it's going to get a little, little pokey right now. Okay? A little pokey. Hopefully we're gonna get in and I'd like you to maybe have a journal out or something because a few words might come to you in the midst of this that the Lord wants to speak to. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful. It's a puzzling, no, a puzzle that no one can figure out. This is the message. A puzzle that no one can figure out. I, God, treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Jeremiah 17 19 in the message the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful It's a puzzle that no one can figure out number the number two key to freedom here is know your own heart Leadership begins in self-leadership Awareness of others and even God Augustine said begins and has and works part and parcel with you knowing your own heart And the ways of your own heart. How many of you have surprised yourself? At the places your heart has gone and you didn't really realize that you had that issue anymore. That there was some area of immaturity. The enemy is never aiming at your strength. My goodness, why would he aim there? Because you got all sorts of fortress around that. He's walking around prowling like a lion, ready to devour you at your point of greatest immaturity. At your father and mother issues. That's where he's aiming your greatest insecurities that no one else knows about but you and God, which makes them perfect turf for the enemy to mess with them because they're already in the darkness. He likes that. So he plays with them. So we have this idea of knowing our own heart. And I love some of the spiritual formation language throughout history. We've had some of this come up in the vineyard at times. We, we go to ministry times, receiving from the Lord. But I think what we need before those ministry times is just some good self-awareness straight talk. So here's some self-awareness straight talk. Here are things that arise from a false sense of who God made you to be. Who you are. False sense of self. You cave to others' expectations. Anyone find yourself driven around, led by others' expectations of you? You know, I, I like people to like me. I really like that. And I don't like people to not like me. And the amazing thing is, is that when someone says, I need you to do this and I expect you to do this, and I say, I can't because I don't have that kind of margin in my life. Therefore, I choose not to, but I love you and honor you, but it's not going to happen. I don't like the feeling I get when they go, oh, or when they say, "Uh, yeah, that doesn't work for me. I need, I I need this anyway from you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, my answer is still no. Well, why is my answer still no? Because the drawbridge on my castle is not always down for everybody to come in and out and just take and get whatever they want. And we think, oh no, the Lord must have led them to me because there's need. No, there will always be need. Need does not necessitate a call to meet that need in that moment. No matter how Christ-like we want to be. And some of you say, oh, but Jesus was always meeting everyone's needs. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He absolutely was not. Jesus knew how to say yes and he knew how to say no. True? Do you know how to say no? Steve Jobs came into Apple. They said, We need you to fix this. And he said, 400 plus products. I have no clue. How does anyone have a clue what to buy? The first order of business is for me to say no to about 300 plus of those. We're going to take this down to just these few things and do them well. And I thought, Oh my goodness an analogy for life. That'll preach, right? We need to be good at saying no, saying no graciously. Here's one of the ways I told you this to be really practical. Here's one of the ways I say no graciously. I'd love to, but because I really would, I'd really love to meet that need, but I also have limitations. So here's another one. You are a limited being. I'm sorry. I know you want to have your superpowers shown to the world, but you're a limited being. You have limited time, energy, space, capacity. I found my wife went through life, man. She was the opposite of what everyone expected the pastor's wife to be, you know, in the, in the church. I don't know if you have those here. It's like, she plays the piano. She leads the women's room, she, does the, she was like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I said, yeah, but, but how much of, of anything are you? Nothing let's not use anything. Let's just say nothing. Zero. I'm not doing anything. Okay. I got three kids to raise. Welcome to my ministry. So I'm going to do that while we do these things together and oh, I love you, et cetera, but we're not doing this. And she has always been, I'm telling you, the men in my church, I would get calls in the middle of the week. I am not exaggerating from men saying, is Anita mad at me? And I'd say, what do you mean is she mad at me? He said, well, she walked right by me in the foyer at a Sunday and she even looked me in the eye and just kept walking. She didn't even say hi. I'm like, get in line. She does that with me. (laughs) And she's a focused girl. Her dad was one of the guys who briefed the Joint Chiefs of Staff on terrorism in the Middle East. She needs a small country to run and I am that small country, (laughs) right? Okay, but (laughs) our joke is I'm the little helium balloon and she's the girl holding it to the ground. Her whole job is to kind of watch it move (laughs) and then... And I'm like, please don't let go right now. But she has this great capacity to say no, and it's always inspired me, it's always helped me to know my limitations. And sometimes I would rely on her, I think I shouldn't have relied on her, but I'd rely on her to say no for us. Or I'd I'd use her to blame her, and we realized over time that was actually a cool tool I could use. I'm sorry, Anita said no, and they're like, then don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. Like, okay, good, we're good? Oh yeah, we're fine, right? Okay? Living up to others' expectations, other false sense of self, following shoulds versus invitations from from God. Living out of obligation rather than consecration. God called you and invited you to do something. Every yes to God means a no to something else. And when you say yes to something that is not holy ground under your feet to do, someone else is not going to get to do the thing that God invited them to say yes to. You with me? We don't want to displace each other's yes. We don't want to jump on each other's holy ground. And I started to realize that, that every time I said a yes, it means no. Why? Because I'm not God and I'm a limited being. I've only got so much of me to go around. And that's painful. Over the years, I've had many people, it's just, I'm just sharing my heart. I've had many people say to me, hey, would you mentor me? Would you mentor me? And my answer has to be, I'd love to, but I already have Like a set of people that God has invited me to work with. And go ahead and blame God. He doesn't care. (laughs) I don't love people saying, you know, hey, God told me, you know, all the time. But sometimes I go, God told me to do this, and therefore that's what I'm going to do. And you know what? That's also good role modeling. Because then they learn that maybe they should learn how to say some things, and I just mentored them, and they didn't know it. Okay? People-pleasing misaligned desires desires that are askew having masks trying to look good as a spiritual leader when you're a mess i am not a fan of pastors or leaders whenever they're in a bad state making sure the congregation knows how they're feeling at all times i don't mean that sometimes i think we just need to get up and we need to swallow it and say lord this is for you and I to deal with. And here's the message you've given me to deliver. And at the end of it, or here's the word you've given me or the ministry you've given me to do with the kids or whatever. And then the Lord strengthens us in that process. I believe that. But I also don't think God does fake ever, ever. When someone asks you how you are and you're having a tough time as a spiritual leader in the church, the answer is not fine if you're not fine. It's, it's a, been a tough day. But I welcome your prayer. So thanks for that. Thanks for asking don't practice being fake really it'll it'll cave in on you it will over time it'll put too much weight it'll put too much weight on the system hiding our true feelings out of fear of being known or ignorance of our own true feelings we have to practice expressing our emotions becoming aware of how we're actually feeling about things God's not put off by our feelings In fact, he wired us for them. In fact, even our great fear moments tell us something about a point of pain and a problem that needs some healing within us. I was talking about all these tests, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, all these things that are helpful tools, but they're not ends in themselves, but they're helpful tools for self-awareness. And I was talking to someone who was an eight, and I'm like, you actually like conflict. They're like, kind of, yeah. Adam Russell. He's an hey, you had him last year. He's like, yeah, I actually find relationship when I'm going at it with someone. I'm like, that's awesome. I'm not sure we can be friends. You know? And he's like, well, we don't have to go at it. And I'm like, well, now that I know you like that, let's go, let's go, let's scrap. Continued uh, conditional acceptance of others. We judge others in our mind. Controlling our image, the perception of our image. Feeling like we have a right to satisfy our desires. Fearing exposure. Reveling in glory days, that's part of the false self, where we're we're nostalgic about things we used to do because God hasn't invited us to do them now. Self-deception regarding, what did I say here? Self-deception regarding our ministry. Self-deception is a funny thing. I think it's rampant and powerful in our generation. Self-deception is needing to believe something so badly you make yourself believe it. You make yourself believe something is true that is simply not. I've been self-deceptive before, I've deceived myself. I needed to believe something was true when it wasn't. And typically it was in a ministry time, the Holy Spirit would just expose it. I'm so grateful for the room we make for the spirit. We seek ground that's holy under others' feet, but a true sense of self. We're willing to be seen for all our imperfections and insecurities, willing to be uniquely us. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote this thing years ago, I love it. It's called the four degrees of love. He said, here's the four degrees of love. Everybody starts with love of self for self's sake, right? We just love ourselves because we're the only center of our world we have. Love of self for self's sake. And then he said, then we grow a little bit and life teaches it and we meet God and all of a sudden it's love of God for self's sake. (laughs) I love God and serve God because I really get a, a buzz out of this. It's helpful to me. Youth group spirituality often ends at this point. Seriously, we gotta be careful. Then we have the third degree of love that we've always thought is the end. Love of God for God's sake. And we're like, God, I love you because of who you are. And then God says, yeah, well, we actually have one more degree to go. And that degree is what's going to enable you to not only sustain as a disciple and a follower, but also as a leader, it's also going to give you joy when you're 80 or 90 years old or whatever years I give you. And that is love of self for God's sake that you are comfortable in your own skin you love who God uniquely made you to be I was talking earlier I hope, hope Jimmy doesn't mind we were talking about about sailing and boats and water that's a unique gift that God's given to me loves those things what are those things that move you that connect with you they are your points of renewal when I'm in art galleries I am it's my language of prayer I stood out there looking at those, uh, they're either Rothko's or they're Rothko knockoffs or whatever. I stood out there looking at it. I don't know if anyone else saw them all around the place. I love them. I think they're beautiful. I'm standing there staring at it and it's part of my language of prayer. It's renewal. It's what gives me the strength to do the next thing I have to do. You need to build into your calendar self-renewal. Find the things you love, name them, and put them in your calendar because what's in your schedule actually gets done. Not what's on a list or in some little inner place that you tucked it away that you really like it but you're probably not going to do it because we're busy doing ministry. Are you with me? We don't want to lose you and I would rather the quality of who you are be richer and renewed that you bring to that moment of ministry than have you cut off these things in the name of Jesus and he never asked you to. We tracking? We tracking? What are the things you love? Who God made you to be is vital. It's important. Loving honesty is your new pattern of relationship. You're honest with people. You do it lovingly, but you're honest with them. You recognize that you're responsible to steward your own life, your desires and limitations, capacities and longings, not your boss. I remember our, our pastor walked in one day and he couldn't make the payroll that week. We were, you know, he was just struggling. We were... And he was in, like he was, you could tell he'd been crying, like he was just fighting. He couldn't believe that he couldn't meet our payroll. He said, Dan, I can't give you a paycheck this week. And I was like, that's okay, Steve. You never wrote my checks anyway. God does. And he looked at me. He said, you're right. And I said, wait, I I do want the check, eventually. (laughs) But just so you know, God's the one leading this. And and that self-leadership moment, those are tough moments for me. Because sometimes I have to say, here's my lines. And I can't cross these just even in the name of ministry, in the name of team, etc. You need to know your own limitations. We can stretch them. It doesn't mean hunker down and pull back and never get out there. But guys, we have to care for ourselves. Self-care is a big deal for leaders. For long-term sustainability. I am loved regardless of what I do or don't do without conditions. Because I'm made in the image of God. I as a leader and I as a disciple, I'm worthy of love. No matter what I do or don't do, I am not invisible. And when I tell myself things like nobody cares, it's a lie from the pit of hell. God deeply cares and he likes you. He likes you. He likes your uniqueness. Another point of freedom is receive ministry. I think everyone who's in leadership should have a prayer core of people who have no vested interest in your success. I personally have a spiritual director I meet with once a, 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 once a month. Some of you, don't, I don't know if we all know that language. It's, it's common in certain traditions to have these. But what I love, it's basically a person who asks me a lot of really good questions so that I can hear God on my own. And every month, he's got no vested interest in whether I'm succeeding or what I'm doing. He's always baffled. It's like, oh, and what are you doing now? Oh, well, that's wonderful. You're going to be in the UK. Oh, my goodness, that's great. You know, he has nothing to do with it. He's not in the vineyard. He's in some other world. And I just pour out my heart to him. And I'm telling you, he's, he prays for me. He sits there and lingers over prayer. We spend an hour together every month. And all of a sudden, I walk away filled. And then I have a prayer team right now, 40 people who are praying for you and praying for us right now and praying for me in my heart because they know I'm carrying some challenges with my wife's health. I'm carrying a few other things along the way. They're all aware. And the part I love is that none of them have a vested interest, are you with me, in my success as a leader? They just care about me. And you know which circles get to hear certain things and which ones don't others. But I think you need a list that you can send prayers to if you are in front of anyone, because if the enemy can take you out, he can mess with a lot of other people in the process. So the target is on your back, both for God and the enemy. Okay, get a prayer team. Invite input and words from others as the norm and deal with blind spots as they emerge. And finally, this last one, Key to freedom, be yourself and share your stories. Own the package God has made you to be. I had to own many years ago that I'm an artist and I'm just gonna be it. I'm gonna be it whether I'm pastoring or worship leading or hanging out with my kids. Got tired of always doing what everyone else thought was what we all want to do, when it wasn't what I want to do. It doesn't mean I don't take one for the team or take 83 for the team. But here's the reality i found with Christian leaders often. When they're talking, they're telling you all their stories instead of asking you about yours. Has anyone ever been there, done this? I've been with a lot of leaders who have been on stages and with microphones too often. And so they sit in rooms doing parallel play, which is what it's called in child psychology, where you're playing beside each other, but not with each other. Right? And they're telling their stories. And these are majorly, and I'm going, ho, 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 ho. Do any of you even know all the names of all my children and where they're going to school? Did anyone want to hear that? Anyone want to hear the kinds of things that I did before I was with you right now doing the thing that is the only grid through which you see me? You track it with me? So share your story. Find moments to share your story and ask people about their stories as well. Is that okay? I'm like powering through things because I know y'all want to go to the bar. My goodness. I know that an artist, it's important to me that, uh, that my love for beauty, I started years ago, I could flip through this. Um, I've never been a great drawer, but I love to just sketch the places I go. This is actually Rathlin Island, by the way, yeah. And I just take sketches, I go around, and uh, this, I'm not kidding you, from our bedroom window in Rathlin Island, a double rainbow. And I was like, a double rainbow all the way, you know? My wife was like, don't make this moment stupid. This is gorgeous, right? It was a time of promise and I was just, uh, that's right. Here's some more of those cliffs, you know. I, everywhere I go, I'm sketching things. I'm just sketching architecture, sketching things. And the only reason I do it is because it makes me happy. And I write little poems with every single one of them. Find the things that bring you joy, do those. Watercolors, make sure it's a part of your life if it's your thing, if it makes you come alive. We need you to be not only alive, but full of joy. Find out what brings you delight. Name it. And then talk to significant others that have a vested interest and see if you can plan it into your schedule. If you can make ways, if you're, if you're married, to give the other the opportunity to find those points of delight. And my thought is it has to happen at least monthly. Something monthly at the very least. It's not a luxury. It is your lifeline. It is your language of prayer. Okay? Okay. Some of you are like, yes, I just got freedom to buy all the fashions that I love. Never mind. Um, Name what brings you delight. Get good at the why not question. Start talking with the Lord like, why not? You know, I'd like to do this for five years. Oh, my goodness. Why not? Five years out of a life that might be 80 or so. what's What's the math on that? What's the percentage? Why not? Why not try it? Why not? And I don't mean do the dream and wreck your family and everything else in the process. There's discernment, right? Well, what I'm saying is, is that question of why not is one that's very precious to the Lord because it's the question that comes from freedom. It's not always trying to hedge our bets to make sure we don't blow it. Because you'll pass on one day, and I'd love for one of the legacies you leave that others who hung around you said, all I know is she delighted in who God made her to be as she did what God invited her to do. She was really comfortable in her own skin. Man, that's an inspiration. That's what I want in my kids' bones for the rest of their lives. That's what I want there. Move away from ministry guilt and Christian guilt. It's useless. It's unhelpful. It will just burden you down and weigh you down. What I don't mean is don't be good at dying to yourself, right? Of course, we need to do things. That we don't want to do. But some of us, I think, we're so, we've been so focused on the cross and are so good at dying to ourselves, we haven't learned how to fully live. Irenaeus of Lyon. I had it painted by an artist on my wall in my office at the university years ago. I put it up. I said, I want it big. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. I said, we're coming alive, coming alive. Not just in our spirits from the regeneration, Right? that Christ has done in us, but we're also coming alive to be who God made us uniquely to be because that's a powerful gift to the world. God has no interest in killing your uniqueness. That's not what goes to death in the baptismal waters. It's the old nature that we lose so that what we do, we do out of love and out of obedience and out of delight in the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you stand with me?